And we're going back again to the book of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We have been talking about the subject of the Godhead for the last few weeks and uh, last couple of weeks. And we're going to continue that today. Not sure about next week. Next week on Sunday night is our Christmas program and banquet. And uh, many times uh, on the morning of that program and banquet, we will, uh, uh, I'll see if the Lord will let me teach something, preach something with uh, regard to the, the Christmas season. And um, sometimes He will allow that, will direct me that way don't know what we're going to do next week for sure. You just have to come and find out, and uh, you'll, you'll know about the time I will. Praise God. There's a lot of times I step to the pulpit, and, and I'm still wondering exactly what the Lord's about to do, but He always knows, and He always takes care of it. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, and by the way, we do want to invite everyone to come and be a part of that program and banquet. That is next Sunday night at 6 o'clock. And uh, to our guests, we want to encourage you to come and be a part of that. Uh, We will meet downstairs. We're going to have a meal. And uh, you're invited to come and be a part of that. And we're not going to charge you. As our guests, we're not going to charge you anything uh, for that meal. And, in fact, I'm not even sure how it works for the rest of us. We will talk about that maybe tonight. Um, I think young people are going to be serving us, and part of that's going to be helping to raise money for heritage, and so we're going to be giving them some tips uh, for their service, and uh, that'll help them on their heritage trip for this year. But we'll talk more about that tonight, but we do want everyone to know and to be aware that we would love to have you next Sunday night, not tonight, but a week from tonight. Uh, We'll be meeting downstairs, and we'll have a meal, we'll have a program. Uh, It's a great time, and everyone is invited to come and be a part of that. In fact, we like to make this an outreach, so if you know someone that uh, you can't normally get to come to church, this is a good time to bring them, and it's a good time to invite them to come. Praise God. And uh, if you've got folks coming, it probably would be good for you to let my wife know so that we can know how many to plan for. We don't want to run out. We don't want to run low. But we want everybody who wants to come to be able to come. So we'll talk more about that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And we could keep reading, but we're going to stop right there this morning um, as we look at, once again, this subject of the Godhead. And Jesus' question to his disciples 
was, who does everyone else say that I am? And then he turned to them and said, who do you say that I am? And that's the important question for all of us today. Who do we say that he is? Amen. Do we recognize him for who he really is? Or do we have some misconception about who he is? I'm going to tell you a whole lot of the world really has a misconception about who Jesus is. They really do. And it's important that we know who he is. In fact, it's essential that we know who he is. Amen. Praise God. So we're going to talk about it uh, today and over however many weeks the Lord allows us to do this. Uh, I can definitely see this spreading into a number of weeks at this point. And uh, so we're going to continue on for as long as the Lord and time will allow us today. Would you put your Bibles down? Would you lift your hands, lift your voices? Let's ask the Lord to speak to us. Once again, I'm asking, would you pray that if there's anyone here who does not have a revelation, that God would send that spirit of revelation into this service today. Let's everybody talk to the Lord right now. Praise you, God, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Uh, just by way of review today, let me say to you that um, there are, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of misconceptions about God, about the Godhead, about the person of Jesus Christ. A lot of misconceptions, a lot of Wrong ideas. But we've got to go to the Scripture to find the truth. Only the Bible provides us with an absolute source of truth. There is no other book, though there may be good books on the subject. There may be good authors uh, who have written about the subject. There is no other book anywhere that contains absolute truth. The Bible is our only source. And we've got to understand that. And we've got to recognize that. And we've got to accept that. Now, there, as I said, are many misconceptions, many wrong ideas about the Godhead. And, and the most common of these misconceptions is to say that God is a holy trinity. That God is a trinity. Now, now listen, let me tell you, first of all, the word Trinity does not appear in the Scripture. was not even used in reference to God for more than 200 years after Christ uh, before a Catholic priest began to use the word Trinity. Uh, and then the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, was was fully defined at the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D. And so it was some 300 years before there was a quote-unquote doctrine of the Trinity. That ought to say something to us. That ought to say something to us. Because we've shown you in the Scripture 
first of all, that Jesus opened the understanding of his apostles. So if they had a perfect understanding of the Godhead, why did it take the men after them, generations of men after them, to develop a doctrine? I don't read where Jesus opened those men's understanding, but he did open the understanding of his disciples. And so we can trust what the disciples have to say. We can trust what Jesus himself had to say. And that becomes our source of truth. Now, with regard to the doctrine of the Trinity, we've, uh, again, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I've got other places to go today. But, um, but I would encourage you, if you've missed one lesson or a couple of lessons, please, please, please. Stop by the sound booth. We will provide you with an audio recording of any lesson or lessons that you missed in this series uh, because it's important that you get those. With what I'm teaching right now, every lesson is built on a principle we've discussed prior. And so if you've missed those principles, uh, then it becomes difficult to uh, sometimes to grasp where we're going. It's part of the reason why we do have a review, just to give you the principle in, in, uh, in abbreviated form and hopefully allow you then to go with us further into this. The doctrine of the Trinity uh, is defined in many ways. Most commonly, it is that there are three persons in the Godhead and that each of these persons are co-equal. None is stronger than the other or greater than the other. They're all equal with one another. Uh, that they are co-eternal. That means that all three persons have always existed and will always exist. Uh, they are, they are co-equal, they are co-eternal, and they are co-existent. Uh, they, they exist together right now, separately, independently, and yet, uh, the Trinity demands that there is only one God. There are three persons, but one God. Uh, the thing about the Trinity, and, and I said this before, and, and this is not in any way an attack. This is what their theologians say. Their theologians tell you that the Trinity is a mystery beyond comprehension. That it's too difficult for you to understand. That's what they tell you. And I've got to admit, the Trinity is too difficult for us to understand. That's true. The Trinity is too difficult for us to understand. But the Godhead is not. And we know that from the Scripture. Read for me Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Yeah, read with the mic turned on. That helps. For the invisible things from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. All right, all right. Now I want you to read, but I want you to read too fast. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are what? Clearly seen. Are what? Clearly seen. They are what? Clearly seen. They're clearly seen. Being what? Understood. Everyone say understood. Understood. All right, now, look, this, I've pointed this out to you each week. We'll probably continue to point it out in the weeks to come. It's just so crucial that we, that we uh, comprehend this verse. 
Paul is about to deal with some things that are, number one, clearly seen. And number two, understood. Do we all agree with that? That's what he's talking about. He said the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And what are those things? Even his eternal power. His eternal power. And Godhead. Godhead. Read. So that they are without excuse. So I'm telling you, the Godhead is not a mystery beyond comprehension. The Godhead should be clearly seen. It should be understood. And in fact, there is no excuse for not clearly seeing it and not understanding it. It's that simple. It's that simple. Now, Again, I'm not making fun of people. I'm not throwing stones. I'm reading to you their own materials when they say this is beyond comprehension. That's not what Paul said. Right. And Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So that's not what the Holy Ghost said. Right. The Holy Ghost said it's clearly seen. It's understood. There's no excuse. One of their writers said this. And again, I'm quoting them. One of their writers said... Deny the Trinity and you'll lose your soul. Try to explain it and you'll lose your mind. Now that's one of their theologians. Alright? That's the way they look at it. You've got to believe it, they said, or you're lost. But there's no way you can understand it. So how do you believe something you don't understand? I'm here to tell you the Godhead is not a mystery beyond comprehension. The Godhead is not even a fact beyond comprehension. The Godhead can be clearly seen, it can be understood, and there is no excuse for not doing so. It's very easy. It's very simple. And so we have embarked upon a process of giving you four Bible principles. That explained the Godhead. So far we've gotten through two of them, started into the third one and ran out of time last week. Uh, we're going to pick back up with the third one today. But let's just very quickly review what these principles are. Principle number one comes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. All right. So verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's one Lord. He's one Lord. Or as the Hebrew says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's one. Amen. And so Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, and we went back and read it again last week. Won't take time today. But in Mark chapter 12, Jesus said, This is the greatest commandment of all. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is the greatest commandment of all. And, by the way, for those who weren't here, verses 4 and 5 are one sentence. So it's not just part of it. Though Matthew only quotes part, we have to take the whole sentence as one commandment. And that's the way that Jesus did it. That's the way Mark recorded it in Mark chapter 12. And so the greatest commandment of all is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you have to love that one Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. Right? But it all is based upon the fact that the Lord our God is one. 
So whatever else we're going to believe about God, it cannot contradict the fact that there's only one God. Alright? And that's why even in the doctrine of the Trinity, they come back to the, to the basis of there may be three persons, but it's one God. And, and I've never yet met a Trinitarian who uh, said they believed in three gods. And, and uh, they, they will always tell you they believe in one God. That they believe there are three persons in that one God. I'm going to tell you whatever we believe about Him, we've got to believe there's only one because Jesus said that's the greatest commandment of all. So we cannot have more than one God, whatever else we believe. Alright? That's principle number one. Principle number two came from John chapter 4. Now, we read in verse 23 where Jesus was talking about the Father. He said, the hour comes, now is when the Father will seek those to worship Him who will do so in spirit and in truth. The Father seeks such to worship Him. The Father does. He's talking about the Father. And then, in verse 24, He calls the Father by a different title. And this is what He says in verse 24, John 4 and 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and right. in truth. Now, the fact that He comes back to they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth, that's the very thing He just said about the Father. He's been talking about the Father. He uses the term Father twice. In verse 23, we get to verse 24, and now He refers to God, saying that God uh, must be worshipped in spirit and truth. So we know that when Jesus refers to God, He's talking about the Father. Now, here's what we see about the Father. The first thing that is stated in John 4 and 24 is that God, or the Father, is a... Try that again. God the Father is a... It's much better. Alright, so this is important, church. It's important that we understand principle number one, there's only one God. It's important that we understand principle number two, that that one God we call the Father is a spirit. And so every time we read about the Father, we should think spirit. Look, this is one of the most uh, glaring um, errors of the Trinitarian doctrine, is to start assigning personage to the Father. Because the Father is not a person. He's not a person. He is a... There's a big difference between a person and a spirit. A huge difference between a person and a spirit. And that's why we get these ideas in our head of the Father being this old man sitting on a throne, long white hair, flowing white beard, sitting on the throne, you know, and, and throwing lightning bolts at people. That's not God the Father. God the Father is not a person. He's not the first person of the Trinity because He's not a person at all. God is a... We've got to drill this in us. We've got to get a hold of this. We can't veer from this. God... Is... Look, who's speaking in John 4.24? Who's speaking? Some more of you are getting the answer as you hear others saying it. So let's try one more time. Who's speaking in John 4.24? Jesus. Now, Jesus cannot lie. 
And if anybody knows who the Father is, Jesus does. And Jesus could have said the Father is the first person of the Trinity, but he didn't. He's, he didn't even say the Father is a person. He said the Father is a spirit. That's the way Jesus defined him. So that must be the way we define him. He's a spirit. He's not a person. And, and we looked at, we looked at in uh, last week's lesson, we, we started talking about some of the facts about uh, the characteristics about the Father uh, that sets him apart from personage. Um, the fact that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. We gave you lots of scriptures last week to prove that fact. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. There is no place that the Father is not. Right? And, and we read through the scriptures. Heaven is His throne and earth is His footstool. That, that's not a person. The psalmist said, no matter where I go, you know, if I take the wings of the morning, I'm going to find you there. If I, if I go to the depths of the sea, I'm going to find you there. If I make my bed in the grave, I'm going to find you there. I, everywhere I go, you're there. There is no place that I can flee from your spirit. That's what the psalmist said. God is everywhere. No person can be everywhere. But the spirit can. And he is everywhere. He's everywhere. Uh, he's omnipresent. Omnipresent. And then we also talked about how that he is immortal. That is, he's everlasting. The Spirit cannot die. Now, Jesus said God is a Spirit. Right? God's a Spirit. So I'm telling you, I'm telling you, a Spirit doesn't die. A person does. A spirit does not. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to put too much confusion here. I was about to say something, and I think until we get through with point number three, you may not understand what I'm saying. So I don't want to. I don't want to bring confusion and all of that. But maybe I will, because we're going to deal with point three. So I'll, I'll I'll throw this out there and let you chew on it for a while. All right. But the doctrine of the Trinity states that God the Son died. God the Son died. Now, listen, God is a spirit, and a spirit cannot die. God the Son, God did not die. The Son of God died. All right, if that's confusing... Hang on. We're about to explain it to you, all right? We're going to get to, to point number three, and you'll understand it. But it's important we understand. He is, he is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He is immortal. He cannot die. And then the third thing is that he is invisible. And we gave you many, many scriptures that clearly state, first of all, no man can see God. Nobody can see God. And that just makes sense. If God's everywhere, if you were to see God, you couldn't see anything else. Because God's everywhere. 
So you can't see God. And, and no man has seen God. And even the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy that no man has seen God nor can see God at any time. The reason I point out Paul said that is because Paul was present when Stephen was put to death. And Stephen, you know, had a vision that many people say Stephen looked up into heaven and he saw God the Father and God the Son. He saw both of them together. But Paul was there. And Paul said, nobody's ever seen God the Father. So whatever Stephen saw, he did not see God the Father and the Son. He didn't. If we believe the Bible, he didn't. We'll look at that. We'll get to that in time. We'll get to what he did see. Uh, again, it's, it's a mis, uh, misapplication of Scripture. It's a twisting of the Scripture to say that he saw the Father and the Son. He never claimed that. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible clearly says no man, and that includes Stephen, has ever seen the Father. So, uh, it's because the Father is a spirit, and he's an invisible spirit. All right. We started into, into point number three. Let's get there now. Um, I've got just a little bit of time to try to deal with point number three. Uh, we got off onto another aspect uh, of the verse of Scripture we're using. Let's go again to Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. Luke 1 and 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also the holy thing, or that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. All right, now, now look, we, this is where we got uh, off last week, and, and this is as far as we got. But I pointed out to you, the angel said to Mary, the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you. The angel said to Mary, the Holy Ghost is going to make you pregnant. This is not in the notes, but, but get your Bible and get over to Matthew 1. You know, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. That's, that's one of the Bible principles I've drilled over and over and over to this congregation. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established, right? right. You've got a doctrine you're trying to, 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 to believe or embrace. You need at least two or three witnesses. Right. That doesn't mean one verse is not accurate. It just means if you can't find something else to back it up, you're misinterpreting that verse. So Matthew chapter 1, what does verse 18 say? Matthew 1 and 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they had or came together, she was found, she with, was found child with child of the Holy Ghost. Of the, the Holy Ghost. It was the Holy Ghost that impregnated Mary. What does verse 20 say? But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which, for is, that conceived which is conceived in her is of the Holy is Ghost. Of the Holy Ghost. There's three witnesses. Three witnesses. 
that the child in Mary's womb was fathered by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the Father of Jesus Christ. Now, if the Father is the first person and the Holy Ghost is the third person, then we've got a problem. Because Jesus kept calling the first person his father when really it was the third person that caused Mary to get pregnant. So either Jesus is confused, which I don't believe, or Jesus had two fathers, which I don't believe. Now, I mean, he had his stepfather, Joseph, but you know what I'm saying. There weren't two literal fathers of Christ. God the Father and God the Holy Ghost. The first person and the third person. Either he had two fathers, the first and third person, or he was confused. I don't believe either of those. The third option is this. Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit is simply another name. My batteries just went out, so I'm going to have to just deal with it. It's all right. It's all right. Um, Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit is just another name for God. Because God is a... So the Father is a... The Holy Spirit is a... Now, how many spirits are there? God, Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, was repeatedly referred to as the Holy One of Israel. If He's the Holy One and He's a Spirit, that makes Him the Holy Spirit. You don't have two different persons. One's the Father and one's the Holy Spirit. That's not two different persons. That's two different titles for the same being. We went, we went through this last week in that I'm a pastor and I'm a husband. But when I stand behind the pulpit, I don't say to the church, your husband is preaching to you. And when I go home, I don't say to my wife, your pastor would like something to drink. The term that I use is dependent on the relationship at the moment. And so we read about Holy Spirit because that is the Spirit of God coming to dwell inside of mankind to make us holy. We're not holy on our own. We can't get holy on our own. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We can't get holy on our own. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to make us holy. But what is that Holy Spirit? It is simply the Spirit of the Father coming to dwell with inside of us. We call Him the Father because He did Father, Jesus Christ. And because He created all things and is therefore the Father of the universe. So those two terms deal only with the relationship that God has with His people. They are not terms that identify different persons in the Godhead. Is everybody with me? This is really easy. It's really, really easy. We dealt with this more last week. You can go back and get, uh, get the recording and listen to that. But, but let's, let's go back. Now Luke 1 and 35. Let's go back. And let's, let's look at Luke 135, because we want to give you principle number three. Principle number three, uh, Luke 1 and 35, read it for me again. 
And the angel answered the angel and, said answered unto her, and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come the upon Holy thee, Ghost is coming upon you. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. The power thee. of the highest is going to overshadow you. Therefore also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of now, God. I want you to watch this. I want you to look at this, alright? Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, to whom is the angel speaking? Who is he talking to? He's talking to Mary. So the angel says to Mary, Mary, what you give birth to is what we're going to call the Son of God. All right? Only that which came from Mary can we call the Son of God. Mary is not the mother of God. She's not the mother of God. Because God is a... And she is not the mother of a spirit. Let me prove that to you. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Alright, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now let me ask you a question. Which one was Mary? Was she flesh, or was she spirit? Mary was not a spirit. Right? Mary was flesh. So if Mary was flesh, that which is born of flesh is, if Mary was flesh, what did she give birth to? Mary did not give birth to a spirit. Mary did not give birth to a spirit. Mary gave birth to flesh. So, Look at Luke one thirty five again. The and, angel and said, the angel said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Alright, so here's what the angel said. The angel said that that which is born of Mary is what we call the Son of God. Mary was not spirit. Mary was flesh. Therefore, what was born of Mary was also flesh. And that's what we call the Son of God. The Son of God is not an eternal spirit. The Son of God was flesh that was born of Mary. All right, let me give you a second witness to this. Go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the God law. sent forth His Son, how? Made of a woman. How? Made of a woman. Made of a woman. I want you to see, according to the Scripture, the Son of God was made of a woman. If the Son of God has always been 
than his mother has always been. Because he was made of a woman. I'm telling you, when we read Son of God, we should think flesh. We should think humanity. When we read Father, we think Spirit. We think divinity. But when we read Son, we should think humanity. We should think flesh. That's why. And, and again, I'm going to call out scriptures. I don't have time to read all of these today, but, but you can listen to the, to the message and write these down. Uh, you can write down the ones you can catch right now. Uh, but, but let me just go through a few. In Luke 2.52, it speaks of him growing physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. It says he increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with man. That's talking about the Son of God. That's talking about the humanity. Deity doesn't grow. Deity doesn't learn. Alright? We're talking about humanity here. We're talking about flesh. Matthew 4 and 2, Jesus got hungry. Spirits don't get hungry. John 4 and 6, He sat upon Jacob's well because he was weary. Spirits don't get weary. Flesh gets weary. In, in Matthew chapter 8 and 24, he slept. That's flesh. In John eleven thirty five, he wept. That's flesh. In, in Matthew sixteen thirteen, he called himself the Son of Man. In John 8 and 40, he called himself a man. In John 19.33, he died. That's not talking about a spirit. That's talking about flesh. Alright? So, so, we believe in the eternal Father... Are you with me now? We believe in the eternal Father because the Father is a... But we do not believe in the eternal Son. Because the Son is the... Ah, let's try that again. The Son is the... The flesh. The flesh is not eternal. The flesh had a beginning. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman. It had a beginning. There was a time when the Son of God was made. We don't believe in the eternal Son of God. Now listen, John 3.16 is one of the most quoted verses of Scripture out there. But those who quote it are often overlooking something very, very important. In John 3.16. Let's read it here. I can quote it for you, but I want you to see it. I want you to understand what was said. John 3.16. For God so loved, God the, world so loved the world that He gave, that his, he only gave his only begotten Wait a minute. He gave His only... Begotten. What kind? Begotten. He gave His only begotten Son. 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There is a difference between begotten and eternal. Right. That which was begotten was not eternal. And that which is eternal was never begotten. He is the begotten Son of God. Well, hallelujah. Hebrews 1 and 5 says this. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son. Thou art my son. This day have this I begotten thee. This day. Get this, church. This day have I begotten thee. There was a day in which the son was begotten. Right. Do you see that? There was a day when the son was begotten. Right. The doctrine of the Trinity states that he was eternally begotten. No, 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 no. You can't be eternally begotten. I mean, that's like saying well, this was a white blackbird. There is no such creature. All right? If it's a blackbird, it's not white. You can't call him the eternally begotten Son of God. That's not what Hebrews 1 and 5 says. Hebrews 1 and 5 says there was a day in which the Son was begotten. There was a day when the Son had His beginning. Why is that? It's because the Son's not a spirit. The Son is the... Oh, it's too weak. The Son is the... That's much better. That's much better. Watch for this microphone. It's coming your way at any moment. In fact, let me show you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Get ready for this now. Get ready for this. Theologians don't really want to deal with this passage very much. But let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's start reading here uh, in verse number 24. We're going to read down through 28. Listen to what Paul says. Then cometh the end. Then comes the end. When he shall do when he have delivered up the kingdom of, to God, even the Father. The, son, the day's coming when the Son is going to have delivered up the kingdom to God, and God is the Spirit. All right, you're not watching for the microphone. It's coming your way, and you're not watching for the microphone. So, so listen, the day's coming when the Son is going to deliver up the kingdom to God, which is the, even the Father, which is the, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority that and power. That day coming when every other authority and power will have been put down. Then the Son is going to deliver up to the Spirit everything. Read on. For he must reign. But he must reign. Till he hath put, put all enemies under, his, under feet. his feet. The least or last enemy the last that, enemy shall, be that shall be destroyed under him. It is the... It, it is manifest. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Go back to verse 26. I think we missed something here. First uh, Corinthians 15, 26. What does it say? The last enemy the shall last enemy. be destroyed. It shall be destroyed. Is, is death. Death. I didn't want to miss that. I'm looking forward to that day. That's the last enemy. And when that one's destroyed, it's over. I'm looking forward to that day when death is destroyed. I'm looking forward to the day when death dies. Right. Amen. Oh, hallelujah. I'm looking forward to that day. That's right. Amen. 
Death has caused us so much grief. It's caused us so many tears. But I'm telling you, the day is coming when the sun is going to overthrow death and death itself will die. Right. Oh, hallelujah. All right, all right. I'm on another subject. But, all right, let's go on. Verse 27. For he hath put... All things, under, all his things feet. under his feet. But when he saith, uh, all things are put that time under. That comes that all things are put under him. It is manifest, manifest that he is expected, which did put all things under him. Uh-huh. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, shall be subdued unto him. Then shall the Son also, also himself be subject, be unto, subject him unto him that put that all put things, all under, things him. under him. Why? That God, that God, wait a minute, that God, which is the Spirit, that the Spirit may be all in all. I'm telling you this. There is still a place for the Son of God right now. But the day's coming when every enemy will have been defeated. And every enemy will have been destroyed. And when that happens, He's given up everything so that the Spirit, once again, may be all in all. So here's what I'm telling you. The Son of God had a beginning. And the Son of God will have an end. And that's why we don't call Him God the Son. There's a difference between the Son of God and God the Son. Because God refers to a... And the Son was not a spirit. I hope you're getting this today. We don't call him God the Son. He's not God the Son. He's the Son of God. All right? Big difference. Big, big difference here. Um, The purpose of the Son was for redemption. He came. He suffered. He bled. He died. He rose again. His purpose continues for mediation, which is ongoing for the church. He is our mediator. He will come returning in glory, reigning on this earth for a thousand years. And then He will defeat every foe and every enemy until finally death is the last thing put down. And when that happens, the Spirit is going to be all in all. In the beginning, the Spirit was all in all. And in the end, the Spirit will be all in all. Hallelujah. Listen, this is why you don't find the Son of God in the Old Testament. I know folks say, oh yes we do. Hang with me. I'm telling you, we don't find the Son of God in the Old Testament. There are places where people want to try to put Him, but we don't find Him there. Um, one, of, one of the passages where they say we find the Son of God in the Old Testament is Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. Let's look at this real quick. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fist, 
who hath bound the waters in a garment, who hath established all the ends of the earth. What is his what name? What is his name? And what is his, and what son's, is his name? son's name? If thou canst tell. So, here we go. The great scholars and theologians want to point us to Proverbs 30 and 40. What is his name and what is his son's name? Obviously, the son is present at this time. Well, we've got a major problem. And it's what I, you know, this is simple stuff, church, all right? We don't have to get complicated in all this. But I've always told you, you can't start in the middle of a conversation and know what's going on. Right? Right? And you can't start in the middle of a chapter and really understand what's happening in that chapter. So we get down here to verse 4 and it makes reference to the Son. But start with verse 1 and let's see what this chapter is all about. The words of Agur? Yeah, whatever his name is. The son of JQ? Uh-huh, yeah, him too. Even the prophecy? Even the what? Prophecy. The what? Come on, church. Even the what? Prophecy. This passage was not dealing with the present time. It was a prophecy of things to come. So when there's a reference in verse 4 to his son's name, it didn't mean the son was there as a person at that moment. This is a word of prophecy. All right? See, it's so simple. When you just let the Bible interpret itself, it's all so simple. Okay, so so then they say, all right, well, let's go to Daniel. Let's look at Daniel, because we sure find the Son of God there. Daniel chapter 3 and, and verse 25, I think it is. Daniel three twenty-five. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking, in the, men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. Walking in the midst of the fire. And they, they have, have no hurt. hurt. And he formed. Of the fourth is like, is like the, son, the of God. son of God. See, here's the Son of God in the Old Testament. All right, again, we can't jump to the middle of a chapter and understand what's going on. Now, we're not going to take the time to read all these verses. Uh, this is obviously the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So who is it that's looking into the fire and saying the form of the fourth is the Son of God. Who, who's, who's looking into the fire saying that? Thank you. Nebuchadnezzar. This is a heathen, pagan king who worships many gods. He doesn't know Jehovah God of the Old Testament, and he sure doesn't have a concept of the Son of God. In fact, if you look at the original language, what you'll find is that Nebuchadnezzar said, and in fact, let me just tell you, church, get any translation you want to get. Almost without exception, the way this is translated is, the form of the fourth is like a son of the gods. He's not talking about Jehovah here. He hasn't recognized Jehovah as his God. He knows many gods. And he's looking into the fire and he's seeing something that looks kind of human and kind of divine. And he doesn't know what else to call it except a son of the gods. 
He didn't think this was one of the gods he served. And you know, they believed that. They believed that their gods came down to earth, married human beings, had children. They taught those kinds of things. And so he's looking into this fire and he sees something that's got a brightness and a glory about it. And he says, this is like a son of the gods. He was not identifying the person of Jesus Christ. Because he didn't know about him. He couldn't identify him. Well, hallelujah. Praise God. In fact, I'm looking for the passage here. I don't want to take too much time, but but you can go back and read it yourself. And uh, um, he talks about uh, their deliverance. He talks about all that. But he, he did not, it was not until after they were delivered from the fiery furnace that he began to recognize the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Up until that moment, he said, who is your God that can deliver me out of, uh, deliver you out of my hand? Right? He, he didn't even recognize him. He didn't give him any credit up until that moment. But now, now, he says, and there, Josh has put it up, this is the American Standard Bible, uh, and the aspect of the fourth is like a son of the gods. That was the idea that Nebuchadnezzar was expressing. He wasn't saying, I see the second person of the Trinity. Because the Son of God did not exist physically at this time. We'll have to get into what his existence was. That's a little bit more complicated, but we'll get into that later on. But I want to just drive the point home to you that there is no reference in the Old Testament to the Son of God, to the second person, they say, of the Trinity. It doesn't exist in the Old Testament Scriptures. In fact, I'm going to tell you this is one of the biggest problems that Jews have with Christianity today. Because they say that a belief in the Trinity is tritheism, or the belief in three gods. And the Jews, it is drilled in them that there's only one God. I, I, I called a rabbi several years ago, and I asked him. I, I knew that he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, he believed the Messiah was still to come. And I said, I just want to ask you something. To the Jews, you believe Messiah is coming? He said, absolutely. I said, when Messiah comes, who will he be? Who is this Messiah? He said, it is Jehovah God. Now, he went on to say, that doesn't mean he has to come in human form or anything. He was trying to make sure I understood he didn't believe Jesus was Jehovah God. But my point was this. The Jews have always believed there's only one God. The church was founded with nothing but Jews. You didn't get these Jews overnight to change their mind that there's, well, oh, okay, well, there's three persons in the Godhead. No. No. 
This is why it was so hard for them to accept Jesus as their Messiah. He was one of them. They expected Messiah to just appear because he was Jehovah. They expected him to come in spirit form and deliver them from the Romans. And that's not what happened. Messiah came in human form and delivered men from sin. It was a far greater bondage he came to set us free from than what they were expecting. They were expecting Messiah to come in spiritual form and establish an earthly kingdom. But he came in human form and established a spiritual kingdom. Did you get that? It's just backwards. They thought a spirit would come give them an earthly kingdom. Instead, a human king and gave them a spiritual kingdom. And not just any human, so don't, don't write me off, all right? Next week, you don't want to miss next week. We're going to talk more about this person of Jesus Christ. We don't, we don't, we can't just leave him as just a man. Because he's so much more than just a man. Understand, what I'm talking about now is the term son of God. What does that term refer to? When we read about the son of God, we should always think, all right, when we think about the Son of God, when we read about the Son of God, we should always think flesh. That's right. We should always think flesh. So when we read about the Father, we think spirit. When we read about the Son, we think flesh. We don't think persons in either case. fact, to call Jesus the second person of the Godhead is such a travesty. It really is. Now, I said it was terrible to call the Father the first person because He's not a person. The reason it's so bad to call Jesus the second person is because Jesus never referred to Himself as second anything. He never put Himself in second place. He said, I am Alpha and Omega. I'm beginning and end. I am first and I am last. But he never said, I'm second. Hallelujah. So we'll put all these pieces of this puzzle together uh, when we get back next week. I, I don't have time to get into this. I don't have time to get into this because I've got, it's going to take me way too much time to deal with principle number four. So we need to just go ahead and close out right where we're at. But I want you to understand, you've got to get this. Principle number one, there is only one God. Everyone say there's only one God. All right, principle number two, God the Father is a spirit. Everyone say that. God the Father is a spirit. Number three, the Son is the flesh. Now, if we get these three principles, we are three-quarters of the way to understanding the Godhead. And it's when we get to principle number four that everything fits together. It all comes together very simply, very beautifully, and it makes perfect sense. Hallelujah. And we're going to give you another scripture when we do that. All of this comes from scripture. I haven't had to quote uh, Justin Martyr or or Tertullian, or uh, any, of the, any of the Catholic 
fathers to try to prove anything to you. I've stayed with what the Bible says. I think the Bible explains itself in this area. I think it's clearly seen. I think it's understood. I think there is no excuse. God is one. He is a spirit. But that spirit sent some flesh down here to die for us. Because the spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. And it requires the shedding of blood for us to find remission of sins. You believe that? It requires the shedding of blood for us to have remission of sins. And God's a spirit, and a spirit doesn't have blood to shed. And furthermore, a spirit can't die. So the spirit could not redeem us as a spirit. Hallelujah. It took, it took flesh, human flesh. It took blood. To bring redemption. The Spirit, as a Spirit, couldn't do it. But the Spirit had a plan. And the Spirit knew how it could be done. Well, praise God. And really, I don't know, this may become our Christmas lesson next Sunday because uh, the Bible said uh, His name is Emmanuel. That is God with us. That's what Christmas really is all about. That's what it's really all about, is the fact that God came to be with us so that He could save His people from their sins. Not in their sins. Not in their sins. He didn't come to save us so we could keep on sinning. He came to save us from our sins. That's why He imparts to us that Holy Spirit that gives us strength and power to live above the, the, the allure of this world. Well, praise God. That's another lesson for another day and we'll, we'll get into that. Why you have to have the Holy Ghost. Because we're not going to be righteous without it. We're not going to be pure without it. We are not going to live a life free from sin without the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Ghost. Can't happen. Can't happen. Look, that's the whole purpose. God, in the Old Testament, He allowed the Jews to live by the letter of the law for centuries. But all the while, they were proving a point. This cannot be done. It can't be done. You can't have a list of laws and rules and regulations and just expect everybody to live by the rules and laws and regulations. They can't do it. They can't do it. So God, through the prophet Ezekiel, said, you know what I'm about to do? I'm about to take those laws and rules and regulations, and I'm not going to put them on another set of, of, of stone tablets. But I'm going to take them and I'm going to write them on the tables of your heart. I'm going to put it on the inside of you. And that's why I tell people, I smoke as many cigarettes as I want to smoke. But don't judge me. I smoke as many as I want to smoke. I drink as much alcohol as I want to drink. 
You know, I've never been tempted. I've never been tempted to pull into a parking lot where they've got a liquor store and go in and buy something. Never been tempted to do that. You want to know why? Because there's something written on my heart. It's not because somebody will say, oh, look at that preacher. No, no. There's something written on my heart that says, I don't want to do that. I'm not living a life of legalism. The reason I live the way I live is not because of laws and regulations that are written on stone. It's because of something God wrote in my heart. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to do those things. Nothing thrills me more than when I hear new converts talking about, you know, I started to do this, I started to do that, and all of a sudden I just felt bad about it. I just felt, right. you know what was going on? God was writing something in your heart. And when God writes it in your heart, it's so much more powerful than when you hear somebody say, don't do this, and don't do that, and don't do this. When God writes it into your heart, I'm telling you, something changes. That's what the Holy Ghost is all about. The Holy Spirit of God comes to tell us, God doesn't like this. God doesn't like that. All right, Lord, I feel that. I can tell that. I know I don't feel right when I do that. Not because somebody's telling me, but because you've written it on my heart. Hallelujah. And I'm going to live by those things you've written. In my heart. That's not law. That's love. Look, Jesus said, if you love me, yeah, he didn't say, if you love me, honk. Isn't that amazing? These bumper stickers honk if you love Jesus. So you pull up and honk, and they turn around and cuss you out, right? It didn't say if you love me, honk. He said if you love me, keep my commandments. That's what love does. Love seeks to please the one you love. When you have a love for God, you want to make God happy. And when he writes in his book, this just doesn't make me very happy. Especially when he writes, this makes me angry. You know, there are some things that make God angry. In fact, even though God is loved, you know, there are some things that God hates. He hates them. Now look, that that makes... When you think about the fact that not that God is love or has love or shows love, I mean, not that God has love or shows love, but that God is love, that that's his nature, that's who he is, what he is. When you think about the fact that God is love, and yet there are some things that makes love hate, makes those things pretty bad, doesn't it? If the one who is love hates something, that thing must be really despicable. And yet there are things. There are things. And if you've never done it, you owe it to yourself to do a little Bible study on the word abomination. Abomination. Now, you have to be careful because 
It's used in a lot of ways in the Scripture. For instance, the Bible says that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, that doesn't mean God wants you to think He hates shepherds. He said the Egyptians hate shepherds. It's an abomination to Egyptians. So we don't want to follow the Egyptians. There were things that God told the Jews, this shall be an abomination to you, such as pork. Shellfish. Plowing two different kinds of seeds in the same plot. Making garments out of two different kinds of material. You know, th- these things these things God told the Jews not to do, and some of them he called abominations, but he said they are to be an abomination to you as Jews. God said, I want you Jews to hate it. But there are some other things that God said, I hate. And when God said it's an abomination to him, then we need to set up and take notice. Because he said, I'm the Lord and I change not. You know, witchcraft is an abomination to God. It's not just called a sin, it's called an abomination to God. That means God literally hates witchcraft. He hates it. And if he hates it, I don't want to play around with it. Right? God hates homosexuality. The Bible says it's an abomination. God hates that. So it's, it's an interesting study when you start finding the things that God says are an abomination to Him. Because those things don't change. If God ever hated something, He still hates it. Because he doesn't change. In him there is no shadow of turning. He also hates a proud look. A lying tongue. All that's in there. It's all in there. It's an interesting Bible study you can do on your own sometimes. Try to find the things that God said are an abomination to him. But this is not legalism. This is love. If I know God hates it and I love God, then I don't want any part of it. Not because he's making me do it, but because I love him. And I want to please him. And if he hates something, that's not going to please him. Are you with me this morning? We've come a long way from the Godhead. How did we get off in this? I don't even know. I don't know where how we got there. But anyhow, we're there. Ah, anyhow, God's a spirit. We talk about the Son, we're talking about the flesh. Thank God, thank God, there is a connection we're going to talk about next week that actually provided salvation for us. It is the way that the door of salvation was opened to us. And I'm thankful for it. Praise God. Let's stand and lift our hands to the Lord, everyone. Let's love the Lord. Let's love the Lord. Let's love the Lord. Praise God.
I worship you, Master. I worship you, Master. I worship you, Master. Praise God.